afternoon. My name's Andrew Belletti and I'm still in Darwin and today I'm talking with Colin Simpson who is an audio handyman. He's a sound mixer. Uh, he's a extraordinarily talented guitarist. Um, he designs PA systems um, and he's pretty much the go-to um, technical, like a real proper schooled audio technical person in Darwin. Um, yeah. G'day, Colin. G'day, Andy. What do you think, if, if I was to ask you what you were, what your thing was at the moment, and, and I know what you've done over the past, but how would you describe yourself at the moment? Um, well, I'm um, a happy all-rounder. I will do um, some gigs maybe in Darwin in a local club like Happy S or the Railway Club. Um, I like independent bands. I've got a lot of uh, experience with independent bands, um, indigenous musicians. It's great. That's a part of what I do, travel out to communities to work on festivals, music festivals and so forth, and workshops. Um, and in Darwin, as a backstop, I guess, I um, repair electronic equipment, audio things, guitars, amplifiers, sometimes microphones, make leads, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I've also done a few recordings, but not too many lately. So tell me, before you got to Darwin... What what was what was happening and and what you know this kind of sound system community this drive that you've got for doing community stuff and stuff that doesn't fit the mould where does that come from? Mm. Um, I left sort of cold, depressing Melbourne in 1979 to go to um, Perth, which was sunny, and everybody seemed to be happier. But um, to get work. The easiest way to get work was to um, take PA systems and bands around the regional areas. And uh, the idea being that after you'd done that for a year or two, you could start breaking into the city circuit. But I enjoyed travelling around regional places and country towns and stuff so much that I I never really got serious about the city. And um, one of the early things I remember is they used to have moon dances on the full moon down in places like Albany and Denmark in the southwest of Western Australia. So we'd turn up in a, um, you know, a van with a small PA and some lights and, um, and take all comers, you know. Any bands in the district, any musicians could just get up and there would probably be a headlining band coming down from somewhere. Um, but it, the spirit of it was, it was, they liked, We'd make our own entertainment. The bands would make their own entertainment. We would do things at a really low price and just for the enjoyment as much as for the money and then we'd move on and do something else. But So after a few of those, um, I lived in Albany for a while. There was a surprisingly good scene. There was a great folk club down there. Um, the waifs eventually came out of that folk club um, Ross Ryan, who's a real old-time legend from the 70s, came out of that Albany Folk Club. Fantastic little music scene down there, a pub rock scene, these moon dances, and um, uh, plenty of opportunities to just pack up the van and travel. So that's that gave me my taste. So we, we went everywhere, you know, all the way up to Broome eventually. I did that for about four and a half or five years and uh, after which I went back to Melbourne. Um, again, the scene over there in the early to mid-80s was... Um, I was a bit restless after all the country and I wanted to go bush again. So I came back to Darwin to have a look around and uh, then look around the NT and I liked it. So I've pretty much been here ever since the mid-80s when I met first met you. And before that, because when I first met you, you had you used to talk a lot about Jamaica. Mm. So how does that fit into things? Well, I've always loved reggae music, and uh, I was a big fan of Bob Marley and the Whalers. Um, I had worked on a Peter Tosh gig in Perth in 1980, and which was great. And uh, I had it in the back of my mind I'd like to go to Jamaica. I didn't actually pull that off until 1991. 
and my partner and I have works had got to go. We were pretty excited. We'd been saving up for a long time to go, and we got to go over there for the summer festival season, and um, it, which was fantastic. Um, we loved the PA systems over there. Every little place that had music um, would have an interesting homemade PA. The big festivals had big professional PAs, but they, again, they had that spirit of doing it themselves. Okay, so we need to go back to when you first got to Darwin then. Yeah. Um, so back to the, because I think that was kind of uh, the first part of the 80s, so maybe 84 or something. That, yeah, 84. That, that I first yeah. And, and in, the, in the context of us um, making our own entertainment and, make, and our own gigs and that, uh, that's one of the things that attracted me to you guys, to the Swamp Jockeys, that you had a great um, we're going to do it, we can do it ourselves um, attitude, which I found a bit lacking in the bigger music sense. Um, Melbourne, Sydney, Perth were getting very specialised and uh, so we put on a lot of gigs, as you know, um, sometimes under people's houses or in their living rooms with whatever gear we could put together and uh, some really excellent... Um, um, gigs at the uni, which I don't think have ever been equalled or surpassed. Um, the vibe in the mid to late 80s out there, they were ready for it and we we came and did it. Um, what We had great gigs at the uni. We didn't have huge PAs but we had enough gear and heaps of people used to come and like it. And I think that, that launched quite a few bands out there. My band at the time, your band at the time, were regulars. And um, um, lots of other mu musicians surely came along and got a buzz out of it too. Yeah, and I think what was really interesting about the stuff that we were doing um, was it was not part of the conventional mm. network. So yes. when uh, – and I know when we – and this is out of a couple of factors. One is, you know, environment. So – you know, indoor kind of pubs were, you know, they had their clientele, they wanted to preserve their clientele and if they had a band uh, because of the air-conditioned pub vibe, they wanted it to be, you know, like something that was on topic. So they wanted it to be a cover band. And in those days we were pretty much playing almost 90-something percent original material. Yeah. And um, as you guys were and a whole bunch of other um, bands were, um, you know, this burgeoning early 80s kind of original scene, but we mm. had nowhere to play because the venues did not want to know about us. That's right. Um, yeah. And that was uh, – and by necessity we were forced into unconventional venues like scout halls, Greek halls. Yes, the, the uni where we commandeered a um, demountable, mm. but the band couldn't fit inside, so we had a makeshift stage outside. Mm. So again, you know, outside sound systems, mm. the rooftop of the workers, you know, the rooftops, basketball courts, mm. outdoor areas were yeah. were predominantly where we could play. Mm. Um, and unorganised or, or, or part of the, not part of the organised music sector. Mm -hmm. So we existed outside of that, which is, I think, what made it interesting and challenging. Oh, yeah. And when you jumped from stage mm. and put your guitar down and then jumped behind the mixing console, which yeah. you did with alarming regularity, yeah, yeah. <laughs> suddenly uh, Simo's gone and then he just appears behind the mixer and he's like, oh, you know. Um, but, yeah, so you mixed and played const you know, constantly. There yeah. was that kind of uh, interchange between the two yeah. roles. Um but there was all those challenges of you know you're, you're fighting the environment at times the cicadas were louder than the than yeah. the guitars you know yeah. um you're fighting an environment that's kind of you know oppressively hot yeah. the equipment's blowing up it's yeah. overheating is an understatement but you know that that type of stuff yeah absolutely it's true and um you're right because the much it was much would have been much easier um, to just play the covers and make the money, but none of us wanted to do that. So yeah, and and as exactly as you say, so sweaty, horrible sounding, resonant um, tin sheds with hard floors, sound man's nightmare. Somehow we had fun. Somehow the audience had fun. We we did all that. We did car parks standing on hay bales, um, if you remember, um, more than once. Yeah, um, 
Yeah, that's true, we did. And under people's houses, but one of my favourites is in somebody's lounge room with so many people in an upstairs house that the house looked like it was shaking so much it was going to come off its off its peers. And I thought, I'm never going to see this anywhere else in the world. So, yeah, Darwin was a buzz. It was great. And the, the idea of one of the activities before soundcheck was to swing by Delaney's and pick up some hay bales. Like Delaney's was the, the, the produce and, and uh, live, livestock store in town. Yeah. Uh, we used to have to go by and uh, uh, get a dozen or 18 hay bales for whatever, you know, to, to put under the boards on the stage or for people to sit on or to prop up amps or whatever it was. But hay bales seemed to be part of the, you know, the, the staging that that we did um but yeah i think those challenges are are what made that whole scene really kind of vital and really interesting and you know the fact that we would just randomly get together to kind of print posters and and you know publicize things through word of mouth and again it has a lot of um tie-ins with these kind of grassroots kind of activism stuff i remember we played you know for east timor we played for the unions we played for i mean obviously aboriginal bands um in those days just bringing um aboriginal bands that we knew on stage was Mm. an activist yeah it was thing you know because yeah it was just not done at all yeah. and uh the pubs or the venues or wherever we were yeah. we'd often have to lie about our true intention you know yeah. oh no the the you know the people who own the greek hall we we just blatantly told lies yeah. um before we staged probably one of the most memorable gigs mm. um in darwin i mean mm. i think we almost yeah the the floor the floor almost gave away there as well yep and you know we could name drop but really if you're talking about putting on people like coloured stone which we did and rumpy band and it's amazing to think now because they're such legends but at that time they really couldn't get a gig in darwin yeah even the mill sisters soft sands i mean when we had shows we would always look for who can be given a hand up onto the stage yeah, yeah. to to perform and Tiwi Whalers over at the grand final. Yeah. I mean, there was always, um, and again, that was, to me, that, that felt like kind of the natural thing to do because yeah. that's what we wanted to do. But in hindsight, it was activism. I mean, it was like, mm. what are you guys doing? Yeah. And a lot of the time, you know, when you did it, you know, as a clandestine activity, you know, yeah. you kind of yeah. got people in. Because don't forget, in those days, I mean, especially in Darwin, yeah. um, I know a lot of Aboriginal people felt very uncomfortable in venues because the people would be trying to kick them out, you know, yeah. and, and that was uh, the sad fact of, of the day. Um, so, you know, like getting people up on stage in those yeah. in those venues, either organised or disorganised. It was very rare and it did feel like this, well, this is different for Darwin. People would, would look at you in surprise, like you've got Aboriginal band on stage. Like that's, people in those days in Darwin, um, it really was iconoclastic. It was sort of like everyone had their little scene and it was all locked up. But I think that's what made it so exciting and, that, and that's what made us so motivated to, to do stuff. Yeah, and for me personally, like, it was so much more interesting and exciting to do that, given my other background before I got to Darwin. It was just totally natural for me to join that. I wasn't going to get stuck in a pub and grow mould, you know, in the corner as a mixer in a pub. It was just so exciting and so much more interesting and you provided basically essential services for a lot of bands as well. So apart from all the rest of it, I always remember um, your ability to repair guitars that various bands have, you know, in the middle of a performance or or straight after the performance, the, the guitar turns up or the amp turns up on your doorstep with a note, yes. broke the headstock, yes. this overheated makes funny spitting sound now yeah. and we need it for the, the gig tomorrow night. So you'd be there whatever time of day or night repairing stuff for bands yeah. across the spectrum. Yeah. Um, that's right. And at the time it's just what you did because it needed to be done. And uh, it came in really useful when I started going to Arnhem Land regularly because there's always a pile of broken gear out there. And um, it, 
it's it's fantastic because it means the show can happen and all of a sudden you've got more than enough guitars and amps instead of none or hardly any yeah so but uh and the same in darwin i mean for the local musicians um as well it made no difference to me in that in this that if it was broken i'd try and fix it and my track record was pretty good i managed to fix but you know, you, a lot of stuff yeah i think you're underestimating <laughs> you you have the technical skills to yeah. glue guitar headstocks back together you know what i mean to, yeah, to yeah. fix amplifiers that have been destroyed yeah i mean that, that's not a <laughs> it's, it's not a kind of an average skill this is yeah no yeah. this i'm definitely a handyman <laughs> so um yeah so that part of you know that real kind of um hands-on repair um getting stuff together helping keep bands on the road yeah i think that is a huge part of, of the scene as well um it's yeah I, I agree it is um not only from necessity but from my point of view i actually found it exciting because um the range of skills that i had um i could use them all and i felt it, it just made me feel like this is the right place it's that i should be so um as i said when i came from melbourne sydney um and then perth they were getting very specialised. So if you were like the solder monkey, you'd spend most of your days repairing electronic equipment. But in the NT, across the NT um, and in the bush, um, in other states, I suppose, but I could do all those things. So I could be fixing amplifiers, getting PAs together or getting them working or repairing them, guitars, restringing them, putting new electronics, controls, jacks in them, whatever, straightening bent necks, all that. So this range of skills really made for an interesting life. Like I had 25 or 30 fantastic years where everything was never um, run out of things to do and you never knew what was going to happen next week or even tomorrow sometimes. And uh, I also remember the necessity because uh, at, at the time you know we were kind of doing stuff that didn't have much money or didn't have any official support and and i know especially the very first yothu gigs i mean they were part of swamp jockey gigs and there was no money there was no, no support there was no grants there was no ability to do anything so we had to kind of do all sorts of jiggery pokery even to, to get stuff happening yeah. Yeah. um but you know that that also led to these uh, great opportunities. But but one of the things was just with purely just with a PA system. And I remember at the time there was one, um, let's call it a corporate hire facility in Darwin, um, and that you know they used to kind of hire out to PAs to houses of worship, which were kind of very big at the time. There was the Four Square Church mm. that probably had you know most of the kit on hire the lights and sound they had lots of people there lots of money each week um and they did corporate events and you know mm. the more yeah. the pubs that had the money um they did the pas for that so when it came to us mm. they literally used to laugh in our face and say so you want what mm. and you're gonna drive down to where so you need it for two weeks but you've only got like three hundred dollars mm. and they would just laugh in our face so yeah. you know we had not only you but we also had uh a guy called Blair Lade, who's... Oh, yeah, he's um, a true legend. Yeah, yeah, and his PA was kind of... I mean, I might say it was do-it-yourself. It was a decent PA, yeah. but yeah. it came with... And he was a great operator. He was also a great technician, and um, his prices were affordable. And I think he scared the big guys sometimes because he was prepared to put himself out and do that, that stuff, help out bands like us yeah he used to drive down to wherever it was yeah. you know and sleep in his swag or in the in the front cab of the and um roll out this pa that often needed repairs yeah. Yeah. on the road yeah and then when i got a chance to do a gig with him i always enjoyed it always learned something he's a really knowledgeable person um to me he's probably the best audio tech i've ever met in the nt um he he hasn't been in our field for a while because he decided to go off and do other things in electronics, which he's more than capable of 
you know, making rocket guidance systems or something. He's, he's that good at electronics. But um, while he was in, in the game, while he was in the PA and production game in Darwin, it was just absolute joy to work with. And, and it was a golden time for us because we could put on larger events and he had enough PA, quality PA gear to do it. Whereas if we had to go to the major production company, they would have charged five times as much or more. And so we could put on shows to 2,000 people or whatever at a price we could afford there. So maximum respect to Blair Lane. And the show always went on. So no matter what happened with the unregulated, you know, generator power supply or if the generator itself crapped out during the afternoon or evening, because don't forget some of the heat and humidity and dust that we had to endure. Um, So if something like that, if the the power source itself went down or if part of the PA went down, Blair would be out the back of the truck and he's got his soldering iron and his meters and and he's getting it working. And so with Blair, the show always went on. And I don't know who would roll out electronic gear to that extent on a basketball court or under a mango tree in the dirt or on a beach or wherever we used to make him go to. It it was quite extraordinary. Like it was was next level effort and he did grumble but Mm. he always delivered and he loved it. It was a a kind of, he used to grumble a little bit but at the end of the day he'd go, that was just Uh, awesome. He'd do it. He'd always do it. He he was definitely a mentor to me because – um, we were there to keep going and when we did go out bush we would do pretty much what Blair did. He set the mould. He was a pioneer of putting on quality production in, in the bush at a price that people could afford. So whoever was putting on the gig might be a community, might be a group of bands, there might be some government money involved for a festival but uh, that's what we tried to do and Blair set the set the bar for that. He was so good at it. And yeah, and no, no, you know, the idea of having a stage or a carpeted auditorium yeah. or a, or air conditioning was no. that was it was not even on the radar, really, no. was it? And so we did a lot of gigs with the performers just standing at one end of basketball court, and the people at various distances from the stage. Usually, the kids would come in first and start dancing. Um, the bands, one of the bands or the other, would pick up. Um, the challenge and play Wipeout or something like that and the kids would go crazy. Um, after dark, you know, an hour after dark, people would start moving in and then older people would start dancing, teenagers and that. So, so many times those basketball kicks, gigs were just pure magic because it would be full of happy people. They they don't, didn't care at all, you know. It's like we gave them a PA that sounded good, I hope. We gave them bands they liked. And that was all they were asking. And after that, everyone had a great time. And I, th- I often think about that idea that, you know, being on, like, because traditionally when you perform, you're on a stage, so you're elevated, and then the PA is elevated above that. So you're kind of looking up, and it's kind of a bit of reverence or whatever. It's, a, you know, it's a kind of a, you know, it's a theatrical trope or whatever. I mean, it's a the idea of the stage. So when you're on a, the same level and often when you're on the dirt or on the just a piece of concrete, you know, everybody's on the same level, they're all access gigs. That's the other thing. There was never gates, never security, never fences. It was come one, come all. Um, sometimes in Darwin when we did gigs, we would, you know, charge, we'd have somebody kind of standing around the door to make a few dollars um, for whatever we were doing. But generally it was an all access type uh, situation. And, uh, you know, once, because often we would be, you know, involved in the bands and the setup and all that. So by 10 or 11 o'clock, we're finished, you know, exhausted. And then the PA would be still there and it would be left to, at the time, Blair's tape or somebody else's mixtape of whatever dance music for the kid. And then all the kids would come out and just dance and dance and dance till the PA was packed up at, you know, one in the morning or whatever. So those kind of informal discos, you know, from the early to mid-80s, you know, now are a really big thing. Like if you go to Barunga now, they have discos after the bands that start at 11 o'clock and all the kids sleep during the rock and roll (laughs) and they come out at 11 and and dance till 3. but yeah, in those days, it was just somebody would put on a mixtape and just leave the PA set up for a few more hours, and yeah, and, um, yeah, and that was kind of informal. But I think that 
level playing, literally a level playing field mm. um, that we mm. played on and set yeah. up on and all that. No staging, no fancy. Yeah. It was accessible, you know, yeah. and people could see what we were doing. Yeah. You know, people, there was no barrier between the, the performers and the and the PA and the audience. No, that's true. And um, at, at modern Barunga, of course, they've got much better production and, of course, it's lovely to hear that great sound and they can have... A much bigger audience in front of the PA now. I've been there and there's 5,000 people recently, um, 5,000 people on Friday or Saturday night, so they need a bigger PA system. But back in the day when we started it, I was at the first three Barungas um, and there was very little money for PA and lights, so I can tell you that. And I remember um, your band, Swamp Jockeys, being, I think, at the first or the second one. Um, pardon my my memory but um and we were doing that on the smell of an oily reg as well you know and uh at the 88 barunga when the prime minister came and talked about a treaty um that was done on the uh the football field on the arts council pa which which the arts <laughs> the council most, had, the most yeah <laughs> and that channel yamaha powered desk four bass speakers on poles and uh that's and the Arts Council had loaned it as a form of sponsorship to the festival for the festival, and, and that's what everybody heard. Everybody had to, it was such a small little PA, everybody had to gather around and well, they uh, had to stay it. quiet to hear anything at all. And uh, the African dance troupe had just been that's on, that's right, yeah. So, yeah, that was good, and, and that's the other aspect of my job that I love because I've been in places where there's clearly history in the making, you know. and. Um, the song treaty came from that promise in at Brunga in yep. June '88, but just being in that time in that place, it's and then it felt like important. You know, you could feel the electricity in the air, and every good gig you're always going to feel electricity in the air. That's that's what mixers live for. That's the reason, I suppose, that could be the difference between people that really love live um, sound and people that love recorded sound and I'm not knocking people that love recording I've done a bit of it myself but um, on a night where really good music, really good performers and the crowd are into it you get this electricity in the air that you can't really describe it But um, and then you know that's to me that's part of the a big part of why you do it if you don't get that do something else <laughs> But I do remember sometimes you're talking about Brunga, but there was uh, there was that gig, and there was a, a couple of other kind of festivals that were happening in the '80s, um, where you know a stage of some sort was needed because the crowds were a little bit bigger and it was all outdoors or whatever. But the stage often just ended up being the bogey of a, a flatbed of a truck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, did a few gigs on the back of trucks, didn't we? And um, and hay bales, which you guys made famous, standing on hay bales. At least one of your singers was usually barefoot, so he must have had good tough feet. But, uh, yep, and, uh, you know, there's one thing I do like about even the more recent festivals in Arnhem Land when I see footage cause, um, of them is they still have that, um, that kept that tradition alive of they might be on the veranda you know, out in the school or whatever, just an, any nice little place where they can have a performance space. Um, and that's to save the worry of having to bring in a big production and a big, you know, come up with twenty-five or $30,000 to put on a festival. So um, I love it that they can have a great festival and lots of people play and lots of people come and and it's not a big deal. It's not, oh, my God, where are we going to get... Thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, you know, to have a PA company come out here with big stuff. So I'm not prejudiced against big gigs with big equipment, but it's great. They, I sort of feel like they're doing what we did when I see them up there with a small PA, and that's their festival, and they're loving it. Yeah, know? yeah, and rocking it. And I think you know, I just remember playing on the the the, the, the veranda of the so many schools but yeah and then you know you're trying to trying to get the power lead <laughs> into yes. the classroom yeah. after hours because it's locked and it's the weekend so one of the kids comes over and goes oh, i know how to 
you know, jimmy those louvers and just to get the power lead in so you can f- fire things up. But, um, you know, I think the, the beautiful thing about informal gigs um, is that when you go into the community, no matter what that community is, they feel part of it. So when you're setting up, yeah. they're all around you. You're not locked away in a venue oh, yeah. where you've got this kind of scientific, clinical kind of way of setting up and running leads and putting cable ramps down and testing it with tones and whatever. You're basically setting up and people are asking you questions over your shoulder. What's that? What are you doing with that? And, you know, when you go into community, you become part of the community yeah. and then yeah. they sit on you and then they look at you. And, yeah. and you're and often, you're often asking asking people for help because you're saying, do you know, where, have you got two PowerPoints nearby? Can you show me, um, do you want to, do you mind giving me a hand lifting this speaker, you know, to teenage young men or whatever? Um, so yeah, there's that thing there because you're, you're not taking that approach if you just sit over there and we'll call you when it's all ready. It's like everybody is going to be there. So you get involved, you know. Yeah, it's like it's to me it's the like the ultimate co-design because you you don't go in there with a set idea of what the gig's going to be or the performance is going to be or the, even the music. You know, like we used to literally carry cassettes like, you know, run DMC or or whatever in your pocket and, you know, pop it in the, the while you're setting yeah. up the PA yeah. um, and you'd get feedback from the kids to park a bit later on, you know, you'd be playing some of that. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it was, you know, you figured out what people wanted and you did it their way. I mean, in that way, even the, the music of the, the band we're talking about, the Swarm Jockeys, was kind of designed with the... You know, it spoke to the, it was not the best music on the planet, but it was interesting and it spoke to the environment. It was informed by the environment and it spoke to the audience that listened to it in a very real way, you know. I thought so. I I actually liked it a lot, but I'm not going to praise you too much, but um, it was like nothing else in Darwin and and it fit and you guys were just great. You were just like my favourite band, Um, uh, the pretty much from the first gig, Swamp Chucky gig over, so I thought, well, that, that's my favourite band in Darwin. And um, I had seen a lot of bands and worked with a lot of bands down south, and my feeling was you're as good as anybody. And um, history probably treat Swamp Chuckies fairly kindly, um, I hope. But to me, I th- you were, you were uh, one of the big features of me deciding to live back in Darwin. I thought, this place is happening. You know, I knew what was happening in Melbourne and Sydney and Perth for that matter, and the country around Perth, but um, I decided to stay in the Territory. My family's here, my mum was sick at the time, and it made it a pleasure. It really made it great to come back to the Territory and live up here. And um, so with the Swamp Jockeys, you're being very modest, but there's no no point, you know, being too modest. And But the Swamp Jockeys, um, there were a few other unusual groups of musicians around at the time, and luckily we acted like a, our scene acted like a magnet. So we got to meet them all and work them all and figure out how we're going to put on gigs in scout halls or wherever it was. Occasionally, um, you guys would arrange a gig in, in an actual pub or something, so we'd all have to go along and see how that went. Sometimes not so well. Sometimes it went okay. Um, so you were like trailblazers for us because. We weren't the type of bands that uh, underground, original, post-punk, whatever, you know, psycho country, whatever we were doing. Um, we weren't the type of bands that were going to get gigs in the pubs up here because it was uh, 100% covers, you know, as you said a while ago. So it made it really interesting. And it is really surprising now, thinking back, um, a list I could list, uh, if my memory's having a good day, I could list 30 bands easily in that era that were doing original music. And uh, some of them only last a few weeks. Um, and some bands would split up as they do and come back in with different people for another incarnation or trying a different approach. You or I played in probably f- four different variations of what was really one band. Just try something new, do you sing a new name, whatever. See what happens few new songs so uh, it's all part of the fun and in a scene in a way Darwin everyone says Perth is the most isolated capital city in the world but if you if you accept that Darwin is a capital city in other ways I think we're more isolated than them but if you regard the um, if you're not troubled by 
um, what happens out bush and in the small towns and regions, it's not a problem because there's always exciting stuff going on out there. And so every time I've been to like, you know, La Germania or Kalkaringi or Timber Creek or um, Brunga or Beswick or whatever, um, there's always something happening, yeah? And the grapevine works pretty well. So if there's a new band in one of those places, you're going to hear about it sooner or later. And even in my situation, the last few years, um, had a few serious health scares, um, pretty much in good shape now, but I stepped back and let the younger guys take over all that all that grunt work. I can't work 27-hour days anymore. Um, and so I know there's some great young people um, out in the bush because... Um, we had a good course at uni for a while there and we trained some absolute wonderful people. So I know that legacy, if you want to look at it that way, of having really good people going doing gigs in bush, Arnhem Land, regional towns, I know we've got people that are doing that now. The, the, I think the other thing that I always think about is that when I was you know, in Sydney and Melbourne, um, especially I suppose in the 80s and 90s where the bands or music scenes were very you know as you were saying uh, uh, you know there was the, the the music scenes scenes plural mm. were very compartmentalized and and everybody had their own thing whereas you know in Darwin because we we had this strange band that I don't think any of us actually had a, a a great handle on it was just kind of a bit bigger than us but also it was really shaped by the audience but our audience was who it was just the most like we started getting you know i mean we quickly outgrew the four five hundred seaters we, we quickly grew to you know playing to you know 500 to a thousand people in darwin mm. um and some of those people were bikers yeah um at a block some of those people were the yearly hospital party at Christmas. That was a great, um, great gig, yeah. The, the, the lawyers, oh, sorry, the judges and lawyers down at the trailer boat club. Yeah. Um, the cricket so club. All the unionists, so the rooftop rage yes. where there was thousands of people. Yeah. And, you know, the Timorese, the, the Aboriginal gigs we were putting on at the time, the anti-mining gigs. Yes. There were all these different communities. You got these kind of... Yeah you know what at the time were hippies and then we got lawyers and we got doctors and we got bikers yep. just such a diverse range Absolutely. of community yeah. that supported this really ramshackled band yeah and you know and we somehow managed to keep them all happy and i don't under i, I still don't understand how that used to happen <laughs> but you know and sometimes when you're staring at a sea of bikies yeah. and you're out in the middle of the bush in the middle of the night and it's pitch black out there you kind of think this if this goes wrong <laughs> yeah, right. we might never leave <laughs> yeah. but um you know and somehow the bikers loved us yeah. uh you guys you just had this great vibe but uh, this energy that you guys had um uh, someone once told me that doesn't matter what's in, in front of you in the way of an audience the bands that are going to make it are the ones that just go, okay, it doesn't matter whether there's five people there and they're not interested or whether there's 5,000 and they seem to know all the words to our songs, um, you still give a great gig. And I never saw your band, the Swamp Jockeys, bottle at once, no matter which audience you're in front of. The energy was always there. And um, as you'd, by that stage, you know, by the time I, I'd realised how diverse your audience reach was, um, I'd been a fan of yours for a long time, so I wasn't too surprised. But that's that's the key ingredient. That's what bands like Yothi India or whomever also had. And right from the first time I ever heard Yothi India, which was on the Arts Council PA under a palm tree near the Darwin High School, um, um, very basic, very simple, and but they had this energy and there's a 150% commitment. They knew what they wanted to do, yeah? And you, of course, were heavily involved in with them, but I didn't know the younger guys at that point. And the first time I ever met them, they just popped up to us when we were doing a three-band gig under a house, and they said, can we play? And I said, why not? And they just blew me away. And I'm not at all surprised that they've become Australian legends because they had that um, th ingredient right from the start. They just put it out there, just gave it everything. Uh, and... 
150% commitment. So the I want to just get into a, a, a little, it's not a sidetrack, but um, talk a little bit more about the uni. Because I, I know at the t- early 80s, I was enrolled at the university and so was um, uh, another founding member of Yothu, um, Stuart Kellaway. We are at the university at the time. We were trying to get the Swamp Jockeys off the ground. We were struggling with venues and uh, somebody helped us get access to this demountable building, you know, this relocatable building, and we got in there. Um, and then uh, somebody said, if you do it every now and again, you can get a liquor license as a social club. So yeah. once a month or something, you know, first of all, it was just the one gig. We kind of had an informal stage. I think Blair and everybody was, and I don't know how many bands, but a few bands were on that night. But then after a few months of this kind of happening, it started becoming this informal thing mm-hmm. on the side of the swamp there in at CDU, which is it was it was the community college in those days, but now it's CDU. And it was this informal venue that I just remember on one gig and I was just, just looking around and there were people on the street outside who couldn't even get in. Yeah. The the inside was packed, the outside was packed. They were all around the the back of the stage. It was probably about five or six hundred people there. Yeah. It's just extraordinary. And then that kept going. I mean, I, I know that I kind of, you know, moved on and went to Sydney and started doing different stuff. But this, it became known as the Swamp, mm. um, and it became a pretty decent venue. Yeah, it was. And they had all sorts of gigs there, like some larger and some smaller. Um, it ended up with three demandables in a U shape. So. And all the um, all the verandas of each of the three demanders will be packed, and the quadrangle in the middle will be packed. Um, and yet, down on uh, on a a smaller night, just on a routine Thursday night, they might just have a duo in the corner. And in fact, uh, one of my bands just were rung up at maybe lunchtime on a Friday, saying, "Can you guys come and play tonight in the corner beside the pool tables?" with you know very small PA uh, couldn't get everyone in the band together we just asked a couple of friends and we just got up and played you know three sets in the inside. Co- inside in the corner looking at guys playing pool and the bar at the far end of the demandable just because someone else had bailed out and we felt like doing it and we got a few free beers so yeah it was fabulous and um, that uh, um lasted right up until they decided to change to a big new venue above the gymnasium but but it didn't have the new venue didn't have the atmosphere because it was all brand new squeaky clean and i think the raggle taggle old the demandable the ring of demandables was a really friendly space there's a couple of trees to chill under it was fabulous on a, a dry season night you could sit on the veranda sit inside in in the sort of dodgy air conditioning or sit out under the stars or stand around talking or whatever. Um, so, yeah, they, they, it was basically a very inviting space and uh, very inviting people running it. The student union at that, that, that time were incredibly friendly and supportive of just about anything going. So we could have a you know performance poet there. I remember once they got up ostentatious up um, when he had a hit and we had to sort of be his backing band. He, not sure if you remember that one, but um, all sorts of stuff went on out there. And uh, in you know, in a way, I see more of that now in the in the hip hop scene and the, um, the street art scene in Darwin than the music scene. The mainstream music scene has moved away from that, um, for better or for worse. Everyone likes good production and you know wants to make some money, but um, the front lines now have moved to. A young, generally younger group of people, and the hip hop scene up here is, is amazing. It's way bigger than what you'd expect for such a little town, and um, so rap, hip hop, um, street art are all really big up here, and they're the people that, uh, I think who are doing closest to what we did back in the 80s because they they do it. They just take it out and and do it in the park, you know, at the skate park or. Um, wherever they get an opportunity. I think that's, um, I don't want to um, give too much away, but I think uh, when we first started 
the venue there at the community college, um, I mean, it wasn't really, you know, without people's knowledge. I think a few people in the main university knew about it, but I think there was this general, the Top FM, the, 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 the university or the community college radio station was, a, was in on it. The student union were in on it, but there was only a couple of people in that. But generally people, the people that needed to be in on it weren't formally mm. part of it. They yeah. just turned a blind eye. So there was yeah. like a building manager who just didn't ask too many questions. Right. Yeah. There was the security guard who used to yeah. come around at the start of the night, and I still remember that car, and somebody used to have a conversation or whatever went on, yeah. and um, the security guard would go off and he'd say, so what time are you finishing up? Oh, around 1 o'clock. I'll come back just after that to make sure everything's locked up. Yeah. And he would disappear. So a lot of the stuff happened, um, you know, people were complicit, but they turned a blind eye. It's not as if we did anything bad. No. I mean, yeah. you know. And it's amazing, you know, because now um, on a really big night, as you say, there might be 500 people there um, and three bands um, in maybe. But um, it's amazing considering we're pretty much looked after security ourselves. And I can't remember having one bad security incident in like two years, you know. So, but I think in context, um, the hotels that did have covers, all the big hotels were firing at that time as well. Darwin was a post-cyclone Tracy reconstruction boom. So everyone was kind of catered for and they figured, I think the powers that be at the uni, they figured there was a little niche there for us. Um, a group of people who didn't fit the mainstream and I, I think that's a good thing and you know in Darwin we've got a couple of small venues like Happy Yes still and uh, Railway Club who still have that that approach like you don't fit the mainstream but we'll give you a go you know. Can I, can I just ask you to talk uh, just backtrack a little bit so the the informal venue of the swamp was was one thing but then I wasn't around much after that but the DMDC was kind of the next... It was, yeah. The DMDC was a bit of a find um, in the sense that there was an old building in the city which was um, just being used to uh, store records for the police, I think. Uh, so cardboard boxes full of old obsolete records and they really hadn't got around to putting them in uh, uh, proper uh, archives because it was just easier to leave them there. But anyway, one of our dear friends... Uh, or, or the other discovered this and started knocking on doors until someone finally gave in and said, well, you know, OK, well, you can have a lease on the place, peppercorn lease on this two-storey building, located on the edge of Darwin City, um, not a particularly attractive building. It was just an old concrete um, two-storey building, but it did have a great um, area out the back, which with a few working bees would turn into a grass area. A couple of the... Um, the, the um, committee had green thumbs and before you know it, it was a nice place with trees and stuff and, and you know, and we called it the Petrochemical Love Club initially, but we needed a, an official name to put to the funding bodies and the government so we could get a peppercorn list, so we called it the Darwin Music Development Centre or DMDC. So that ran from a roughly 1990 to December 1995 and uh, we did get involved in East Timorese politics for the last couple of years of its life and that the uh, government at the time didn't like it. Um, they were not interested in having a place where strong political views against the Indonesian government and etc. etc. You can figure out the rest. So um, they started to clamp down on us. But we put on so many gigs there, large and small. Again, you might have a Monday night gig where... Um, that anybody could come and play, absolutely anybody, yeah. And you just, um, you might, one week you might get five people turn up, the next week you might get 50, anything could happen there. So the DMDC had the old atmosphere back, it was very Darwin, very tropical night, dry season, you could lie on the lawn and look at the stars and the band would be under the covered way at the back of the building. So yeah, it was great. Five years of that, um, um, so there, there's the thread. That's what kept us. And that was fairly open access as well too, wasn't Very it? Very open was, access, yeah. There was, um, at least 
two, sometimes three nights a week where there was no cover charge. So it was just like a jam mentality or a friend gathering of friends mentality. So it was a great place to try out your new ideas or your new band and you might get a free beer or two. And uh, then maybe on a Friday, they'd, two or three bands would plan a bigger gig and uh, charge a fiver at the door. But I don't ever remember the door charge being more than $5. And uh, we had some really big bands play there um, from various parts of the world, not just Australia and locally. Because so it was kind of like a worker's paradise. Uh, we really tried to keep that as affordable as possible. I think we succeeded. Um, what's the story with Happy Yes? Um, after Darwin Music Development Corporation, DMDC, Petrochemical Love Club, was shut down in December um, 1995, um, there was a bit of public outrage from the musical community. So the government agreed to um, fund a, a body called MIDI, um, which eventually morphed into Music NT. They, they were tasked with finding a performance venue for live original bands. Um, sadly, that hasn't happened um, all this time later, but somewhere along the way, around 10 years later, well, um, an inspirational fellow from Nullumboy called Chris Keogh um, was an, among our group of friends and he was hunting for a venue probably from about the late 1990s. And in 2004, he found a place that he thought would make a good um, um, venue, and that was the original Happy Yes. But unfortunately, we only had one gig there, and because this had a burst sewer main, um, the landlord said, oh, look, this is really not suitable for a venue, and, um, you know, too many people, only one toilet, that type of thing. So then we went back, or Chris went back, and a small group of his other friends went back to looking for another place and they found an old shop in uh, Bennett Street and opened Happy Yes in there. Uh, that had a licence for 50 people that was so small and um, there was a bit of spillover into the empty car park at the back um, on gig nights which was not strictly legal so every now and again the licensing commission would give us a warning about that because people would like to go out the back and enjoy the night air. But uh, again, that was the backbone of the Darwin Underground and indie scene, and that was a take-all-comers as well. So um, we welcomed rap, hip-hop, um, right through to death metal and all points in between. We're just completely non-denominational, so any type of music was welcome there. And uh, as long as you behaved yourself, because again, the bands would, um, the performers and their friends would um, be responsible for running the gigs we didn't have any money for staff and uh, it was definitely like a community or um, um, type of run event in the initially um, by 2007 it got big enough that we um, the committee was starting to look for uh, which I wasn't on at that time but the committee were worried about um, growth and they decided to look for bigger premises which they did for the next two years and eventually they moved in with uh, Brown's Mart where they still are in about 2010 from memory and maybe the early dry season of 2010. So that's been, still is, um, prides itself on being um, open to all comers. I think that you know, I, I'm definitely see, seeing that in you know contemporary Darwin is that there is there is stuff happening um, but the cost to the cost of participation generally, so the cost of going out, you know, there's lots of fancy bars, there's lots of fancy kind of restaurants, cafes, whatever. Yeah. But um, their next level of money that in, is needs to change hands for you to participate in that type of um, life. Yeah. Um, and yeah, as far as entertainment goes, the same type of thing that there is. Uh, you know, a threshold to participate in that that a lot of people in Darwin just don't seem to have yeah. um, unless you have those jobs that are paying, you know, very, very decent money. Yeah, I think um, that's right. Yeah. So too much aimed at people with good disposable income um, and not enough for the rest. And there, for many of us, we just do not have that, that uh, financial base. Back to the you know open 
participation and community driven designed events i will say though uh, if you just look at it as a music industry um it it is the statistics up here for what it's worth are phenomenal the sheer amount of performers that we have up here um doing some sort of gig or another for the size of our population is phenomenal yeah and um nobody probably has the answer to why that is except arguably that darwin's always been a more welcoming place certainly when i got back here in the mid 80s it was much more welcoming than melbourne or sydney where you sort of start looking for a manager from the time you get 10 songs together in the hope that you can break in and get a few fr gigs for free beers and you know on a waiting list for six months to get in and play fifth band on a four band lineup type of thing back in those days so that welcoming atmosphere that darwin had i hope we haven't lost lost it completely because that's what made the place magic in the beginning. We felt like we could make a go of it, you and I and all our friends and people we knew. We felt like it was worth having a go, you know? And we enjoyed ourselves, I'm, I'm here to tell you. You know, I didn't do it, I wouldn't have done it this long if I didn't enjoy it. We're gonna be working together on Knock 'em Down Sound System April 2024. Thanks so much for your time today, Colin. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, no worries, thank you, Andy.